She is so shameless. She makes me so mad. Don't take it too seriously. Kids these days think totally differently. You're encouraging them by saying things like that. But if you keep complaining, nobody is going to work with you. But she has no manners. All she's got is her sexuality. Times have changed. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowlane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 84, which is Cole's choice. What are we going to be covering today? Today we're talking about Funeral Parade of Roses from 1969, directed by Toshio Matsumoto, starring Shinosuke Ikehara, who goes by the stage name of Peter, Osamu Agasawara, and Yoshio Tsuchiya. It's a modern retelling of the legend of Oedipus as filtered through the underground gay counterculture of 1960s Tokyo, and it is a landmark of international queer cinema. And it opens with this appropriately dramatic quote. I am the wound and the blade, both the torturer and he who is flayed. That is taken from the cover of Charles Baudelaire's Senior High Notebook, in which he kept all the <laughs> lyrics for the emo band that he wanted to start with, Gustave Flaubert. Actually, it comes from his volume of poetry, The Flowers of Evil. Same difference. I can't think of any more appropriate line of verse to start this thing. It has everything that the film has in two lines. Decadence, duality, near histrionic melodrama, true danger, and it works as an epitaph for Matsumoto and specifically his body of work as well because he was constantly dissecting his own art and using it to examine movement and multiplicity. And this film is made for repeat viewings, even this morning when you were going back through it to check on a scene that we were going to do. And I was looking back over images that, of course, I've seen before. The position that specific frames were edited in makes so much more sense, or not sense, but mean so much more now that I'm seeing them again. There's a different purpose. There are different connotations. Well, after that title card to set the tone, this comes out of the gate swinging with this avant-erotic opening. Some sources cite this as the very first approved Japanese film to show homosexuality. If that's the case, this sex scene between characters that we will come to know as Eddie and Gonda is an intense way to start things. It's a real declaration, it feels like. But first, it's just impressions as we're feeling our way through the film. Bodies referenced in frame, hair, stroking the bodies, lovemaking, hands, those striking contrasts. Right. It's more poetic than explicit to begin with. Limbs wrapped around limbs faces pressed into folds of flesh. It's more suggestive of a commingling, a communion. It's more entanglement than penetrative. Bodies blend into the background. They blend into each other. As we return to this scene and encounter others like it, there are long lingering takes of Eddie's body. And I already see a little of the reputed influence on Stanley Kubrick here. But Kubrick would push things to the more clinical and sterile end of the spectrum. In fact, Kubrick would do the same with both bodies and urban landscape in comparison to Matsumoto. 
This feels more raw than that. Certainly audiences at the time wouldn't have felt any Kubrick-esque detachment, don't you think? Did you feel connected to it? It wasn't pushing you away as a viewer, was it? Absolutely not. I thought it was incredibly enthralling, and I wanted to know what was going to happen. And I was just waiting to see if the entire film was going to be this. Because of its avant-garde reputation? Is that what you mean? The choice to start this way signaled to me that maybe there's more to come, but I don't know. I did make the mistake, though, of reading the logline before we got started, and so I felt like I was prepped for an entirely different movie. I think a lot of people may feel that way coming to it, possibly even its contemporary audiences. It was produced by the Art Theater Guild Company, and that association meant that it made it into the same network of theaters that larger, more mainstream films did. So this film got a fairly wide release in Japan. If I were one of those audiences, and maybe I had come from viewing some other French New Wave, I might be prepared for a lot more navel-gazing, possibly. Not just these kinds of navels. Well, there were a handful of underground films that were a forerunner, or a contemporary of this, in terms of its unfiltered homoeroticism. But I can't think of many examples that were probably on as many screens as this one. In the U.S., Kenneth Anger and Andy Warhol were getting there. You had the Stonewall Riots in the same year as this, 1969. Midnight Cowboy broke some ground that year as well. But for Western films, you wouldn't see it regularly or this explicitly for another couple of decades. I think I would have also been stunned to see the artistry occurring at every level of this film, every nuance, every acting performance, every technician. Well, Matsumoto is no slouch, and he is pulling out all the stops on this, his very first feature film. I mentioned melodrama already, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. It plays in all kinds of different registers. Documentary, or neo-documentary, as he was developing it. Verite, experimentalism, farce, all equally effectively. It's as much a collage as anything. Did one facet of it appeal to you more, or seem to work better than any other? I'm just stunned that this was put together as a whole and works so beautifully. I mentioned that this is made for repeat viewing. I want to see everything that I missed or everything that makes more sense and conveys more meaning now than it did at the moment. And this was also Peter's first film. And he has gone on to a long and illustrious career. Actually, both he and Yoshio Tsuchiya have worked with Kurosawa, one on Seven Samurai, one in Ron. So fixtures in Japanese art house film, for sure. And actually in genre film, too. Sci-fi stuff as well. Obviously, it's the experimental nature of it that appeals to me a great deal. For example, there's that moment early on where it looks momentarily like the film is being burned through from behind as we are watching it, obliterating a face that would become pivotal as the story unfolds. It turns out to be a close-up of a photograph, but you realize the disintegration of the film is not out of the question so it's similar to how the opening affected you. This little seed prepares you to be ready for anything as a viewer. If I had just applied my normal Murder, She Wrote viewing habits, <laughs> that would have made a lot more sense at the time. Well, after this tryst, our lovers see a person that they refer to as the Madam on the corner as they're driving away, and we come to learn that this is Leda, the proprietor of the Club Genet and the third point on their romantic triangle. We don't even realize it, but we have already entered into a dizzying flashback structure. And just one of our stories as well. 
And we're always interested in making connections on this show, following where our film leads us. I felt a mixture of all sorts of things. My own private Idaho, a little repulsion, a little all about Eve, all the way up to something as current and transgressive as Takashi Miike. Did you have anything of your own that added to that mix? I'm so glad that you mentioned Miike and repulsion specifically, because this moment when they're in the car, we've got credits over handheld work, over more contrasts, over that high-tension impressionistic music. You could almost imagine that you're also in a suspense film or a thriller as you're watching Eddie's face play out over the rearview mirror. I think more than anything, this film reminded me, not in story, but in feel of Wanda, because we just saw the trailer for this at Austin Film Society. It's going to be getting a fantastic theatrical run. I mention it because avant-garde wannabes are a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> now, I mentioned Kenneth Anger and Andy Warhol earlier. Are you lumping them in as wannabes as well? As How do you break that down? I'm not, and I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm thinking more like the 10th generation of Andy Warhol. Okay. I'm thinking about those people who don't seem to know where to put the camera and just decide on some location that bears no relevance to the story. But you look at this and you look at Wanda and they know exactly where the film needs to go. It's so incredibly taut. There's no navel gazing here unless they want us to be gazing at navels. One of the most striking images that we see over and over again in the film is the use of the rose as a symbol. And early on here... There's a brief scene of hands stamped with roses. It's just one of the many times we'll see the flower, including repeatedly held clenched by someone's ass. And there's a pun in the original Japanese title, Bara no Suretsu. Bara translates directly to rose in English, but it was also a derogatory term used for gay men. Think pansy in English as the equivalent. But in the 60s and 70s, Japanese gay culture worked to reclaim it. And in this case, not just reclaim it, but to provoke as well. It's essentially gay cinema's equivalent of the Texas come-and-take-it flag, I would say. I think the totem for me that emerged in this film were the eyelashes. They serve as a beacon, almost, and I think that's what I see most in Kubrick that would come after, specifically in A Clockwork Orange, though I'm not sure that audiences at that time may have even seen this film. But I don't know how you can come away from this film with a more indelible image. At least that's for me. Well, eyelashes are on full display when we encounter this first interview section with what the film and the Japanese gay subculture itself terms as gay boys. Identity is always such a crucial consideration, and the gay boy subculture is a little hard to pin down from these interviews. They aren't explicitly drag queens, nor transvestites. They aren't exactly transgender, though they mostly present or identify as female. They alternate between he and she pronouns and explicitly state that they don't want to go as far as being a woman. Being a gay boy seems very distinctly to be its own thing, a very unique and separate identity. I don't know about you. I suspect that you're on the same side with me as this. I think it is a glorious presentation. I think it's wonderful not to present one single worldview or identity or reason or justification or any need to do so. At the same time, I felt a little bit sad for audiences because I felt like it was more our problem, that the audience itself did not yet, and 
I don't think still does, though it's definitely changing, have the same vocabulary. So in some of these interviews, I felt like the person had to essentially approach it as a why bother trying to explain you just don't have the same language to understand. I wholeheartedly agree with you. These interviews get right to the heart of two key things that make me love the film. It underscores how, even within a specific community, there are likely as many identities as there are people. So we should give as much room for that as we would like to be given ourselves. And most importantly, they like themselves. It seems an obvious thing. Everyone should be able to say and do that, regardless of orientation. But sadly, we've seen just in the past couple of weeks with the furor surrounding the school in Oklahoma where parents threatened a 12-year-old transgender child that simply existing is a threat to some of these people. So liking yourself in that environment, then or now, can be a brave and radical act. So part of the viewing was exhilarating for me to see this bomb that went off in 1969 that's so relevant today. And part of me was quite depressed. You mentioned the news. That's something that we each live with every day. More and more examples of doors that may have closed forever, though I hope that's not the case. And how something can be radical for simply existing, both the film and the person. Well, your character in our opening scene says it. And one of their actual clients mentions, too, that gay bars have changed. You're right. Time marches on. And it makes me wonder what they mean and how they were before. Surely the implication is that it's better because this place is very now. When that song comes on the jukebox, everybody in this place is cool. Some folks are having a quick grope in the bathroom. It's a party everywhere. So as forward-looking as this is, and as repressive as things likely were before, I don't imagine it's nostalgia for days gone by when they say that. How does it play for you? I think of that embodiment of Lita, the character who is the current madam, who has been so for a long time, and we see the portrait of her as a younger woman, as the it thing at the time. She wears the more traditional geisha clothing, and so it seems that even back then she would have been at the forefront, and yet time is passing her by. So is she longing for a more genteel time? For her youth? I think her case is very specific and separate from everyone else's in this, but I want to get to that a little bit later. Okay. Meanwhile, the other world that Eddie inhabits is with this group of artists, activists, and film students including one named Guevara with a rather dubious fake beard. You know, I like this guy, but he's probably a person I referred to earlier. He's maybe more of the avant-garde wannabe. They're all gathered around watching footage of riot police on television, but the reception isn't great. I like this sense of humor here, acknowledging both their avant-garde tendencies and the political situation in the streets, because they say when the footage is hardest to see is when it's at its best. Through our interactions with this bunch, we get a wider view of the counterculture at large, with everything from drugs to public performance art. Tokyo in 1969 was like a lot of major cities worldwide. There was unrest led by a younger generation, protests, confrontations with authorities, and like a lot of major cities, there were areas where the counterculture congregated and where the LGBT population was more concentrated. In New York, you had Greenwich Village, in San Francisco, you have the Castro District, and in Tokyo, it's the Shinjuku district. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Seems like a super cool place and still going strong, right? Yes, from what I understand, just as vibrant and creative as it ever was. 
The one major way that Tokyo is different from American and most European major cities is obviously attributable to World War II. Firebombing wiped out significant parts of the city, including libraries, temples, archives. So in a way, it was starting with a completely blank creative and cultural slate post-war. While this is obviously a horrific thing to have suffered through, this led to, I think, a much more free sense of experimentation. If we're not tasked with upholding or continuing a specific tradition, things are wide open in front of us. The U.S. occupation of Japan can't be ignored as a factor either. One of the things that they were reacting to when this film was made was the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security between the U.S. and Japan. It was signed in 1960. It was up for renewal every 10 years, so it was looming on the horizon when this was made, and it was the source of a lot of friction and resentment. The Shinjuku district was where a lot of these street protests took place. And like a lot of places rooted in activism, it was also the bohemian part of town. So you had artists, the gay community, outcasts of all sorts that all congregated there. And because of that, you can feel all this tension and energy in the streets. And the film really benefits from that, I think. I'm thinking about our recent mini episode on the punk panic of the 80s. Whereas so much of what we watched for that seemed to be made by people in their early 100s about <laughs> teens, this feels like young people making something for and about young people. You make me think of that Young Ones episode with the TV dance party that's about <laughs> young people for young people. <laughs> because of this urgency, though, that you're talking about, it means that I get a lot of something that I love personally, street scenes. I've talked about this a few times on the show. It's one of my favorite things about motion pictures, being able to see life from street level from all over the world for the last 100 plus years. This is a bit unique in that regard in that some of these are overhead scenes that seem to be shot from the rooftops of buildings, including organ music that makes it almost feel like Carnival of Souls, another touchstone that I kept coming back to. But in addition to adding a feeling of alienation, these rooftop shots had a practical purpose as well. Since the Shinjuku district was such a political hotspot, police were all over it. And they were shooting all of this completely without permits. So if they didn't want to have to settle for single takes that they shot surreptitiously on the fly, the rooftops afforded them at least a small measure of cover, and you could still get a feeling of what was happening down below. They didn't wholly rely on that, obviously. There are some more urgently shot street-level scenes depicting demonstrations and performance pieces by the group Zero Jigen, and a fight between Eddie's group and another girl gang. P.S. Compared to Zero Jigen's usual antics, which they called rituals, this parade with the surgical mask is pretty tame. You should look into their stuff. It's pretty interesting and certainly provocative, as the appropriately titled buck-naked-ass world ritual might lead you to believe. <laughs> well, I really want to be a part of that girl gang. I don't want to attack other people, but I just want to be tough on the streets. Speaking of being tough on the streets, another of these exterior sequences is of Eddie being harassed on the street with a number of experimental jump cuts of her predatory harasser. And here is one of those instances that I think cuts both ways. It's that thing that you mentioned earlier. It raises questions that we're not equipped to answer, that we might not have the language for. But at the same time, without a window like this into a subculture that we aren't a member of, I wouldn't even think to ask it, so it's valuable. And what I mean is, this example prompts me to wonder about the reaction to the harassment. It's obviously hard for women on a daily basis. It happens everywhere, all the time. 
but what are the specifics of it for men presenting as women? I mentioned earlier about how integral identity is and how Eddie and the other gay boys when interviewed specifically said they don't want to go as far as being women, so it's a bit mercurial. Do they have the luxury of going back to presenting as men to avoid this treatment? It seems like that would be a betrayal, kind of, not being true to themselves. Sacrificing something crucial to their own self-image so they endure this treatment as well. I don't think I've ever considered the issue quite this way. How about you? I don't know that I have as well, but I did think it was interesting. It's something that I don't think that we can know. When we go back to those interviews where people mentioned that they don't necessarily want to go so far as to become a woman, that was still 1969. The amount of those surgeries happening, minuscule. Do you think that they meant specifically completing a full physical transition, or do you think they were talking about just living entirely as a woman? I don't know the answer to that. I immediately went to the surgical angle mm. because it was a possibility, and yet it seems like it would be such a remote one that you couldn't even wrap your mind around how I would be able to carry that out. And so I guess just in essence, identity can mean anything. Now that you say that, it makes me wonder how accurately I could even convey what I feel like my identity is. Could you do that either? If pressed, could you actually put it into terms that you felt like someone else fully understood? I don't think that I can. I have this example. You may end up cutting this out of the episode because it could go nowhere. Okay. I'll just say that. Okay. I find, at least in people that I talk to, this is a random sampling of other women that I personally know, a woman's period is very much tied into our sense of a female identity. I now find that to be completely bogus and ridiculous and harmful. I used to feel the pressure when I was a kid up through, I don't know, this year, that if I needed to go get a sanitary pad, I would have to conceal it on my body or bring some sort of a purse, some sort of appendage with me that would hide this thing that we all know that is part of what we have to do. And yet again, it's not the same for every woman. And I'm also not going to say that any person who identifies as a woman, if they don't have one, makes them any less of a woman. And so I've stopped hiding those things. And women who want to compete in marathons while actively bleeding, go for it. I'm not going to say that having this thing somehow makes me a woman or not having this thing makes me any less of a woman or makes anyone else less of a woman. And I don't have a problem with removing those quote unquote fundamental aspects of gender. And then if I take away that, what do I describe myself as? I don't know. Yeah, these things that I think people take for granted or have for a long time because it's nothing that they have to deal with personally you start removing them or exposing them for how subjective they are one at a time, you really begin to understand just how fluid all of this really is. And I hope those things get removed. Let's not be afraid of removing them. Well, that was a long flashback. I'm sure everybody wants to know about how I think about my period. Right. Well, no, what you, not what you were saying. Oh, okay. But where we are in the film... It's actually a long flashback within a long flashback. And then there's even more flashback. The structure of this thing is labyrinthine. I would have to map it out, draw it out on a piece of paper just to see how it works. Because the way it circles back in on itself over and over, it's not confusing. 
as far as the text, the narrative intent of the film, I would almost say it doesn't even matter. It's more important as an indicator of the way these characters navigate the world. And that's underlined by the scene that just concluded that long flashback when Eddie collapses in the art gallery, surrounded by this exhibit of countless masks, masks for escaping loneliness, but specifically for spinning different personas off in different social contexts. Every one of these instances where the film is circling back, we get a little bit more of the onion skin, another layer, another mask. So each time we loop around, a little bit more of this identity is built and shown to us. And we have a second sex scene here that's even more illuminating as far as both how seriously forward-thinking Matsumoto was regarding sexuality and how playful he was with it at the same time. He wasn't just showing somewhat explicit gay sex, but in this second scene, interracial as well. Later, in a scene between Leda and Gonda, there will even be a little blood play when she cuts her legs shaving. I like Matsumoto's style. If we are going to smash taboos, let's not waste any time. Let's smash them all at once. And even with all this boundary breaking, he still manages to remind us that sex is fun. As we pull back from Eddie's orgasmic throws, we find it's more like she's getting a cramp worked out, surrounded by the film crew. That's why I chose to make that long-winded point about my period. <laughs> I'm breaking taboos all over the place that really no one wants me to break. I am behind you and Matsumoto 100%. But not all of his characters reflect that outlook. They can be pretty judgmental of one another. At the club, for instance, one of them suggests that someone else is only in this life for the money. Later, there's the admonishment that if you're a professional, then behave like one. Identity here isn't just about sexuality. There's a question of integrity and purity of intent. Me being me, I obviously side with the I do this because this is who I am faction. I assume Matsumoto does the same based on how they come across in the film. I just want to step back for one second and go back to something you just said. I do think it's important that this is a business at the same time. This isn't just friends getting together to have a good time. This is a club. Eddie gets paid, at least in some respects, whether it be maybe some drugs or lifestyle. So it is an important distinction, and I think an interesting one to talk about why people are doing it, what they're in the life for, even if it's only important to those characters. While they are working all that out, the edible thing takes its time unfolding, it feels like. But when we get to the scene where Eddie tells his mother, forget about dad, you have me, I think it really picks up in earnest. And I think his mother's response sets the world record for the most derisive laughter I've ever seen depicted on screen. Definitely. And that's in a flashback, by the way, that that's happening. Everything is in a flashback. It is. I also like to think of this upcoming scene of Eddie and her two friends at the urinals as a clever nod to Oedipus as well. How well do you remember your Sophocles? Yeah, this is some deep cut Oedipus. <laughs> the crossroads in Oedipus Rex is a triple crossroads, not how we traditionally think of it. He killed his father at a place where three roads meet. It's not a symbol of choice, but of fate. So if you rigorously apply this classical tragic structure to my earlier question about self-image and whether or not there's any option to present any other way, the answer seems crystal clear as they're standing here. We haven't talked much about the love triangle either, since we're talking about all things Oedipal. It seems like this might be a good place to get into it. I think this movie might have surprised you twice, if I read you correctly. Once, like you mentioned, 
when you read the synopsis before you watched it, and I think you were taken by surprise by these edible underpinnings. I know that we're going to continue to discuss this because it continues to unfold in the film. And much of that payoff, for lack of a better word, doesn't come until later. So I think ultimately I find that logline to be a disservice to the viewer. I think you should let this unfold, just go with it, and whatever happens, happens. But knowing what I know now, I watch it again, or I watch it more closely to think about punishment, enjoyment, punishment for enjoyment, those Oedipal crimes, what the director is challenging me to think, what the director thinks, and so on. The second specific surprise in this context that I was wondering about, when Leda's involvement in the love triangle turns out to not be the mother component in that scenario, did that also figure in? It did, because going back to the beginning, which we do see over and over again, when we first see Leda presented, I assumed things about her character and position which weren't exactly correct. So should I just go edit the Wikipedia and take that out? <laughs> There's just so much more happening that, than we know of at first glance. And you feel like the audience is just much better served if everything is as shocking the first time around, if you're not prepared for any of it? The best thing that I read as a guidance for watching this is to watch it as a full body experience, as a full body sensation. And to me, that means turn off expectation. Also, I just think it was a pretty crappy spoiler that I didn't need to know. That's why we do it at the top of our show. So go watch this first and then come back with us. Well, speaking of full body experiences, let's get back to our artist colony. They have convened to screen some underground films. And that stitched together death mask under this kaleidoscope of images was particularly striking to me. Their avant-garde bona fides are on full display, including going as far as quoting Jonas Mikas, one of my favorites. All definitions of cinema have been erased. All the doors are now open. They are talking my language. You can point to this as the central reason that I love this film so much. I believe wholeheartedly that the worst sin that any piece of art can commit is just that of being boring. And Matsumoto is taking this fundamental principle and eliminating restrictions and applying that to everything. Art, sexuality, politics. And these artists are a good mouthpiece for that. And where do you start smashing the system? With weed and naked tickle orgies. Yeah, you can't have a tickle party in a movie and expect it to come out like a dud. Counterculture 101. To be honest, these revolutionaries don't do much aside from watch awesome movies and have sexy parties. I think if any group is being gently caricatured, it's this one, not the gay boy culture. Matsumoto is having a little bit of fun at their expense, don't you think? I do. I interpret that as giving them the largest underwear possible. <laughs> but maybe that was just reality. I come back to the sense that these are mostly just kids fooling around, experimenting, getting high in different ways, putting on airs sometimes. Stripping the airs away from each other sometimes. Trust fun radicals, that type of feeling maybe. Some folks like that. But no one is out to hurt anyone. Their grandiose expectations are really just for themselves. Now that I think about it, he may even be poking fun at himself a little bit. With all of these metatextual references to the filmmaking process and the inability of media to do much except get some students talking a good game. 
I say we go to some avant-garde tickle parties and find out for ourselves. Fact-finding mission. You heard it here first, folks. Our monthly movie nights now have a new focus. Whoa, I'm going to get started on planning that one. Honestly, though, that was the entirety of my early 20s. (laughs) Darcy Shaw, if you're listening to this episode, testify. Well, not that I don't want to linger on your checkered, sordid past. We would go to Blockbuster. (laughs) And find any movie that we could, especially from the foreign film section that had some sort of nudity on the cover or included the word strange, anything like that, and basically just get super turned on and massage each other. Okay, I'll stop there. I think we refer to this period as your Red Shoe Diaries period. Is that Definitely. <laughs> Should I have saved all of this for the Birds and the Bees episode? I, I don't know why we didn't get into that back then. Maybe we'll save it for another special, though. For now, I want to talk about what I think is my favorite scene in the whole film. I love this scene of Eddie putting on her makeup. That is by far my favorite scene as well. It's the one moment in the film that I feel like strips everything else away. All of this swirling relationship drama and social upheaval, it's constantly raging all around the film, and this feels like the calm center The eye of the hurricane. Just a brief rest period. You see her sitting in front of this mirror, and you can imagine the very first time that she did it. A time that was more thrilling then than the routine that it may have become now. A time in her life that was still as uncertain, but because of things yet to be discovered rather than cruel fate. I do want to say that I don't feel any sadness when I watch this scene. I don't feel history pressing down upon me. It just feels so fresh. It's a very sympathetic moment. It's a nice piece of character building, and it's all the more effective, I think, because it doesn't draw attention to itself the way the other, more audacious parts of the film do. It is a rare, reflective, literally, since she's sitting at the mirror, moment in what is otherwise frequently tempestuous. And speaking of tempestuous and audacious, how about this pop gun showdown, finally, between Eddie and Lita? There are cartoon speech bubbles... Wigs and falsies flying every which way. It had to come to a head eventually. A showdown was inevitable. You alluded to it earlier. The old guard must make way for the new revolution. Eddie does eventually become the new madam through a tragic turn of events. And then the new regime, does it become entrenched and the whole cycle starts all over again? I would assume so because that mirror is always going to be in that club, I think, and the new person is always going to be standing behind the old guard. I do think it's interesting that they don't actually hurt, harm, kill each other in this fight. Everything that's done has so many more other consequences and repercussions than a simple stab wound, for example. I feel a little sad for Lita. She's last year's model and doesn't even know it. Geishas cannot compete with go-go boots. It's been clear all along that there was no way she's going to come out on top, at least not to me. It is a farcical element, though. You are correct. And it's very cartoonish in its presentation. But that doesn't mean that Matsumoto shies away from violence any more than he does sex. And the murderous part of this Oedipal contract comes to fruition after Eddie's mom beats her. Eddie kills mother and mother's lover in a fairly gruesome scene. That is the immediate violence. Before that, we see Eddie putting on what I imagine is lipstick for the first time. Again, watching her own image, kissing her own image. I thought about Purple Noon there for Mm. a moment. 
as we then see, fast forward, Lita watching Gonda and Eddie, and that's again intercut with Eddie killing her mother and this lover, I think it's interesting to see those immediate effects of violence and then the ramifications of violence, how that's playing out in both of those stories. And with this flashback structure, it's doubly interesting because do we know if that's a ripple forward, a ripple backwards? Because of this thing circling around on itself so many times, we're not even sure in which temporal direction this will flow. And through some of this, Eddie seems to be having almost a waking dream remembering some of these things. I know I said in the Chinatown episode that there are ways that I would not want to be wounded, and this is one that I want to add to the list. As mom's boyfriend gets stabbed with a dirty kitchen knife in the back in the kidney. I'll throw in back of the neck. This murder scene made me think about what is often a troubling aspect of films from this time period, and sometimes still, I guess, for that matter. This idea of the gay character being the killer, specifically the dangerous deviant. I feel like this handles it okay. This sidesteps that, in my estimation. If you're telling Oedipus, with a primarily gay cast, the inevitable matricide is bound to be committed by a gay character. It's coincidental, not conditional. The line I guess I'm drawing is between portraying being gay as inherently tragic, a bad way to go, versus applying a classically tragic structure to a gay story, a fine way to go if you do it well. Well, since you said that here, I guess I'll ask this question that I was kind of holding off for later. Is the director trying to say that these characters are being punished, either as part of this larger, timeless Oedipal story, or because of who they are? Because otherwise, it seems like everybody is having a whale of a good time. And so if we're being told that these characters are not long for this world, the word funeral is in the title, or simply because that's just the way life works, the old guard is replaced by the new, is that because they're gay? No, I think that thing I said about the coincidental versus conditional specifically addresses that I don't think they end up this way because they are gay. Now, in terms of the rest of it, if we're following Oedipal parallels, Oedipus's crime was pride. That's what he is punished for. Is that also what Eddie's punished for? Lita, at one point, referenced in the scene that we did, talks about how gay boys should have pride in themselves. Ironic, because her final act is, unbeknownst to her, the catalyst for Gonda and Eddie's undoing. It's interesting that you bring that up here, because what comes next is we have a little meta-commentary on Eddie by Peter, who's playing the character. She plays a little coy in one of these talking head inserts and specifically says that the Oedipal parts of the story are personally the least relatable part. I feel like it gives Matsumoto a bit of an out from the Freudian corner that he could have painted himself into with all this. It doesn't mean that the character's fate is any more inescapable. I actually wish they'd spent more time on it, especially with Peter, especially talking about Eddie. These interviews are definitely a favorite part, but they're not quite as in-depth as I would like to see. There's a wide array of perspectives, like you mentioned, including the very last gay boy interviewed, who is not so happy as the rest, and seems a little more adrift. Overall, it seems to be very honest, and I appreciate that about it. I just wish there was more of it. I look at that in a couple of ways. That... One, I think most of our lives are probably fairly banal, so that when Peter talks about not being able to relate to the incest part, that's probably pretty accurate. The second thing I think of, I've mentioned this a few times, I feel like if the right questions were asked, 
Peter could probably blow our minds and the minds of the rest of the audience. It's like you mentioned how they had to film essentially without permits because they couldn't have sat down with an official, gone over what this film entails, and then been gladly handed those permits. That thing you were saying about our lives are mostly banal, and so how much can you actually glean from one of these interviews? It puts me in mind of a thing that I was just watching recently where Groucho Marx is debating with William F. Buckley about whether or not the world is funny. And Groucho's estimation is that even comedians within a 24-hour day are probably only funny eight minutes of the time. Just another one of those tangential things that makes me think about all the things that go into what we consider to be our identity. Because if Groucho Marx has been all 23 hours and 52 minutes out of the day, what hope do the rest of us have? Let me tell you about my deep love for stamp collecting. <laughs> and now to something completely unfunny. That would be Lita's suicide. She's making a party feast for Gonda. They get into a fight. And the takeaway I had from this was that Lita you got old. We don't see that again play out. We see Eddie getting a call that Lita is dead. And she is going in style. She has committed the most dramatic suicide that I think I may have ever seen, laying herself out in a bridal gown and having these representative dolls by the bedside where she has jealously driven nails through the one that clearly is supposed to represent Eddie. We follow this with her eponymous funeral parade of roses in her honor, in this slowly sinking cemetery, and this landscape prompts Eddie to wish for the whole country to sink to the bottom of the ocean one day. I think that could be read a couple of ways, and I'm wondering what you think about this. Does Eddie want the end of Japan and the death of a culture that marginalizes their crew, or is it a wish for the rest of Japan to have to live the way they do, which is often literally underground? I think of it as a world-weary comment from someone who is very, very young, and experiencing things that would generally play out over a lifetime compressed into a couple of decades. Some things that most of us don't even encounter in an entire lifetime. How many of us commit matricide? Um, I haven't. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Mom is a friend to the show. Well, it turns out that Lita was a soothsayer with these dolls. She was not our Oedipal mother, after all, but rather our oracle at Delphi. I referred to this earlier, finally, Lita's death has removed any romantic obstacles for Eddie and Gonda. In case you haven't figured it out by now, which is possible thanks to the concentric circle construction of all these flashbacks, this is the incestuous side of our Oedipal contract. It is the most supreme irony that Lita's suicide makes possible this discovery and therefore enacts the destruction that she had wished upon Eddie but could not achieve any other way other than her own death. And the way that plays out is Gonda, in a post-coital episode, finds a diary labeled Father Returns. And it includes the photo with the face burned out that we saw early on in the film, in which he recognizes himself. And it all comes clear in one horrifying moment. He excuses himself to the bathroom and commits suicide with a knife. Upon surveying this carnage, Eddie puts her own eyes out and wanders out into the street. Her unseeing gaze met by the equally static view of uncaring onlookers who might as well be watching any other mildly inconvenient piece of performance art. I think it's fascinating that we're left with the image literally turned upside down. So I'm sorry to beat this dead horse, but do you put something like that in a log line that does not reveal itself until the literal end of the movie? <laughs> 
so you're saying that the urinal scene wouldn't have been a clear enough signpost for you literary types to pick up on? Definitely not me. Though now I'm envisioning you and Chelsea George in a movie theater and you writing down the end to this <laughs> and handing it to her to see if you're right. Matsumoto can't resist one last flourish of absurdity, though, cutting in here with a movie host inviting us back for the show next week. I guess, much like you would just go to the theater and see what Sophocles had cooked up the next time around. The end. So then, is the employment of the Oedipus story showing us that there is punishment? Is punishment happening there is certainly punishment happening, and I feel like you were right on the money earlier when you talk about how much of a good time everyone is having prior to this. It definitely makes it that much more impactful when everything goes off the rails in these last five minutes. Punishment for Eddie is definitely inescapable. She killed and therefore must atone. But is there more to it? Pride was Oedipus's fall. You referred to Lita's line of dialogue earlier about how gay boys should be proud, have pride in themselves. There is literally no more synonymous word with LGBTQ activism than pride. Matsumoto couldn't have known that at the time, that that would evolve over the decades. But what is he trying to say? I turn this question back to you. The last thing I'm wondering, do you think Toshio Matsumoto is on the inside or outside of this? Does it feel more like a movie made by and or for this subculture, or just a film about this subculture? Gosh, that is a tough one, and I think I go back and forth. I think that it's possible to have both of those things going on, that we're looking at that true Greek idea of hubris, excessive pride, and yet other people can experience hedonism and lawlessness and also not face this downfall. I think it's possible that he could be having a little bit of a joke with us. How far am I going to push this thing? And what do you think I really mean? And I think also challenging us to think about how we, in general, mainstream culture, will fetishize and ostracize these types of subcultures at the same time. Well, this insider-outsider, observer-participant question takes us nicely to where I wanted to go in terms of why I chose the film. It's sometimes daunting on this show or just in general discussion when it comes to choosing films like this, a film about a cultural group that we are not members of. In this case, since we're coming at it from our distinctly cis-hetero background, I never want it to feel like we're being gawking tourists. It's a deeper opportunity than that for me. I feel like I can't be in the wrong if I'm putting sincere effort into understanding someone better, even if I might not be fully equipped to get it, quote-unquote. At least I'm giving it a shot. It's a chance to learn that window into a world I don't inhabit. It's a chance to bridge a gap, see what we have in common, what's different, to see things that are not in my usual travels and better understand, in this case, its beautiful volatility, the risks that it takes, the way it fits into the larger picture of underground film from all around the world, for example. Japan is certainly in the running for the most audacious of all the new waves. That Jonas Mika's quote is what I keep coming back to, though. Matsumoto is working overtime to break down barriers and eliminate rules, and I thoroughly respect that. The impact is enormous. I don't know how you couldn't be excited by an experience like this. Even now, this is an avant-punk glitter bomb going off, and it's awesome. I'm only sorry that I didn't get to experience its full impact in its own time and place. 
I should say in that regard, kudos to Sinalicious Picks, by the way, which you can now find through Arbelos Films for putting out this beautiful 4K restoration from the original 35mm camera negative. It truly looks spectacular. And I'm glad of that because then I do think you can get that full body sensation. And I agree with you. I think anytime our eyes open a little bit wider, that's always going to be a good thing. It's fascinating to me, and I don't think you did this on purpose, that you followed Chinatown with the incest angle up with this film. That was definitely coincidental and not conditional because we both individually laid out our choices months ago for this. And that's just how these happen to line up. Yeah, I'm going to go edit that wiki later on today. <laughs> Before you get to that, how about you give us a recommendation? I picked something that you referenced earlier, a film that follows one of these storylines, and that is All About Eve from 1950, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz with Betty Davis, Anne Baxter, George Sanders, Celeste Holm, Gary Merrill, and Hugh Marlowe. In case you haven't seen it, it's inspired by the secondary story of the younger usurper. I was also inspired to pick this because of a section of the conversation we had on the Criterion Now episode that we were invited to be on recently. We were talking about the merits of Marilyn Monroe, and I like to look at these smaller, earlier roles that she had. This is all about an ingenue who insinuates herself into the company of an established but aging stage actress and her circle of friends. Also a film that has a significant gay following, and one that we could spend a lot of time dissecting the sexuality of the various characters, and how a lot of it is a pretty clever end run around the Hays Code. And how about your recommendation? You're going to have to help me with your fancy French pronunciation on this one. But I have chosen Un Chant d'Amour. How, how close am I? I think you're pretty darn close. I'm just going to clarify a little bit. I would say more Un Chant d'Amour. Look at you, fancy pants. From 1950, directed by Jean Genet. The namesake of the club in Funeral Parade of Roses. It's the only film ever directed by Genet, who was otherwise a celebrated novelist, poet, playwright, essayist, my favorite part of his work and political activist, and whose work was often deliberately provocative and ultra-gay, often intentionally playing up a degenerate angle. He came by that honestly, though, because that was the life he lived, and this film reflects quite a bit of that. It's a 26-minute short and focuses on the longing and desire of a group of men in a French prison and the guard that observes them. It came to mind for a few reasons. This film mentions his name, obviously. Both films are a little pretentious and a lot lawless. Genet was coincidentally in Tokyo in 1969 and actually attended a number of protests. But most importantly, when I was thinking about the earliest groundbreakingly explicit depictions of homoeroticism, this is sort of ground zero. Its nudity and graphic content meant that it even ended up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, which upheld the decision that it was obscene. Anyone interested in the history of LGBTQ film should give it a look, because what the Supreme Court once said you couldn't see is now available on YouTube. Times do change, after all. Do we have a copy of that ourselves? We do not. Ah, hopefully someday, and we'll show those squares on the Supreme Court. But once again, that's two great recommendations, All About Eve and Un Chant d'Amour. And that brings us to the end of episode 84. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly be grateful and we would love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. That one fancy coffee a month $5 level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays 
alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. I mentioned the Punk Panic episode. We're also working on one that's coming out about some of my favorite documentaries by Per Lawrence. We'd also like to give special thanks this time around to our friend Aaron West for having us on his fantastic podcast, Criterion Now. It gets more fun every time we do it, if that's even possible somehow. So if you want to hear us talk about all the latest news about the Criterion Collection, please go check that out. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. Another special thanks this time around to Caroline Abernathy for doing a wonderful illustration of the Lantern crew, including Gibson. And you can see that on our Instagram, where you can also see pictures of our new pup, Woody. He's a sweet brindle boxer mix that we just rescued, and he is having a great time tearing up the backyard with his new little brother. We are also on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in either of those venues. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Doug McCambridge at the podcast Good Times Great Movies. Andy Wolverton. Dice K. Beppu. The Fine Gentleman of Fuds on Film, Jeff Duncanson, Mike Scharf, Brian Sauer, Michael Cannon, Tim Lego, Keith Rich, Grindhouse Dave, Dean Estes, Jacqueline Ellis, Heinz Stuss, our friend Laura Cannon, who has recently started a new podcast called Fatal Films, devoted to the women that shaped the mystery thriller suspense genre, so check that out. And, last but not least, Travis Trudell. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and now Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Special thanks this time to iTunes user Urs Graf for leaving us a very nice rating and review. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review yourself via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 